even the idea that you can observe your own thinking, um, for some people, that, that's a major, a major breakthrough. Um, so some of these fundamental psychological skills um, not only prevent illness, but they improve performance and they improve uh, general well-being. And probably really importantly, they improve potentially our relationships. G'day and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. Lindsay Odes is a happiness researcher, the director of the Centre for Positive Psychology at the University of Melbourne, former co-editor of the International Journal of Wellbeing. Uh, he is a psychologist who thinks hard about how to be happy. And what better guest could we have on the Good Life podcast today? Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be with you. So let's start at the, uh, the natural starting point when I'm interviewing uh, any uh, esteemed researcher and professor. Uh, what do adventure sports teach us about being happy? Uh, that's an interesting one. Adventure, <laughs> uh, for me, for me personally, I, um, I used to do quite a bit of adventure sports until I had children and then I kind of revised my um, role in, in doing them. And what, what I mean by that is I did, uh, I've done whitewater rafting, scuba diving. I've actually done some introductory mountaineering. Um, and this all sounds good and did back then. I've tried to keep the idea of adventure in terms of, I call it intellectual adventuring uh, across different disciplines. Now that's my, that's my new form of adventure. Uh, but I did actually once have a PhD student that did a study on extreme sports and we looked at um, the psychology of extreme sports participants. So there's people like big wave surfing and so if they fall, mm. they might die um, and, and what was driving them. I uh, Some people get a lot out of that. Other people, it scares the hell out of them. But I, I kind of like the uh, the idea of keeping the idea of adventure in, in what I do. Uh, so I've only done a little bit in the extreme sports world, but I certainly remember uh, back in the days when you could uh, climb the Three Sisters in uh, in the Blue Mountains, uh, climbing up the, uh, the the Middle Sister, uh, and having that sense that the one thing that adventure sports did for you was it guaranteed your mind did not wander. Uh, when you're a couple of hundred metres off the ground, uh, there's no way in which anything can distract you. Is that what you enjoyed, the sort of singular focus about it? Or did you enjoy the, the notion that you were living on the edge and uh, uh, you're doing something hideously dangerous? Partly. I, I was never I was never physically brilliant at things like that but i i think one of it was the challenge two of it was the a lot of the environments you're in the actual physical environment sort of biophilia that kind of love of nature uh, so that sort of restorative effect and certainly uh, in our literature we talk about peak experiences or flow or in in uh performance sport it might be called being in the zone when you when you're actually challenging yourself at a level which you can master just uh and getting really absorbed in, in those kind of um, kind of activities, um, you know, adventure sports or extreme sports. That that's, that is an extreme example. We talk often more about flow in the workplace, uh, and you know, is there aspects of our work 
that are challenging enough and giving us immediate feedback where we can get absorbed in, in the moment. Um, that's, that's probably part of um, some of the stuff I used to enjoy about the adventure uh, adventure sports. And I do say used to because it is in the past for me now. Yes, one's risk tolerance does, uh, does change when you have kids. Indeed. Uh, so- You've, you've travelled an interesting uh, journey to where you are now, both uh, uh, geographically and, and intellectually. Uh, you grew up in Adelaide, uh, did your PhD at uh, University of Wollongong, and you're now at Melbourne University. Um, tell us about the journey that's taken you to, uh, to happiness, uh, your, your happiness journey, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. So I refer to myself as a Southeast Australian because I've tracked across those three states. But it, it's, it's really I started... Um, I started, I was trained originally as a clinical psychologist uh, and worked with people with serious mental illness, so schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, that that type of group and service orientations and, and work with that group. Uh, I became a little disenchanted with, with the focus both on the individual uh, and then I started uh, thinking, well, how can I not just think about the individual but think about the system? So I did an MBA. Uh, and that uh, that adage that a lot of the problems are organisational problems, not clinical problems. So this sort of started me thinking about organisations and systems. Uh, but I was also at that time <clears throat> learning about coaching as opposed to counselling. So coaching or the coaching psychology we're talking about here, not sports coaching, uh, which is really sort of growth focused uh, approach or goal based approach rather than say counselling or clinical approaches, which are more about restoring or um, treating illness, that, that sort of thing. So there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, you know, I, was, I found myself more attracted to approaches that were to do with growth and development of individuals, uh, and even so with mental illness like schizophrenia. So I worked on a, an approach called mental health recovery, which is a different way of thinking about um, mental health, mental health services. I uh, wrote a, a book on that and did quite a lot of work on that in an approach we call collaborative recovery model. So I was kind of migrating, uh, without even knowing it, I was migrating from clinical, or what I call traditional clinical and individual approaches to more systems, community-based or organisation-based approaches, which were about the growth and the positive. It was about 2010, I was asked to to, uh, lead up a new uh, research institute called the Australian Institute of Business Wellbeing at Sydney Business School, which is part of University of Wollongong. Um, And so that was quite a shift because I was moving out of a health context into a organizational corporate context and more workplace well-being type approach so i'd moved from treatment of illness to uh, well-being per se and well-being in the workplace uh, adding coach coaches and organizations to that uh, and that, that still at that time at least in this country workplace well-being was still fairly traditional in, in, in its notion and the more contemporary ideas what is this called well-being and happiness, you know, what is all that stuff? What's that about? Uh, and then since that time, I was asked to come down to the University of Melbourne to head up the Centre for Positive Psychology, uh, which is within the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. So it's more wellbeing in the service of uh, education and vice versa. Uh, and that a lot of what we do now is uh, develop programs and evaluate programs, particularly, but not only for school-age kids, uh, in terms of helping them develop skills of how to be well and how to function well. Uh, it includes but goes beyond the idea of preventing illness such as anxiety and depression and suicide, which of course is extremely important, uh, but we have a different angle and a different emphasis. I call it kind of applied wellbeing, 
Uh, and in those cases, it just happened. Firstly, it was in health, then it was in business and org context. Now it's more in an educational context. But you kind of learn who you are as you go, and it's been a, an adventure journey uh, of applied wellbeing. But, of course, during that journey, uh, the wellbeing science area has really flourished. It's kind of, uh, we know a lot more about the science of wellbeing, even just in the last uh, 10 or so years during, during that period I described. Yes, I, I think of a lot of this area as being a tension between the medicalisation approach of, uh, of, of treating uh, mental illness from a deficit standpoint uh, and uh, education approach of, of thinking about how we can build up resilience and, uh, and, and encourage happiness. Every great psychologist needs a theory. Yours is the thrivability theory. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, that's right. And that, I must admit, it's it's still a, a theory in, in building, like it's not a complete work, but it's, it's, it's close to being completed in terms of being under construction. Um, so effectively, what I've been trying to do with thrivability theory uh, is, is combine three, three key areas. One is, is what the evidence of what we know from wellbeing science, um, which includes positive psychology, but it's more, more than that. Scientifically, what do we know about what makes people happy, what makes people experience wellbeing? Also, an area which I'm sure, Andrew, you know a lot more about than I do, and that is the area of economics and particularly the capability approaches of, of people like Sen. Uh, and Nussbaum mm. in terms of um, how do people use their capacities and become capable um, and when they're given the opportunities, how do they realise them into certain functionings? So that that approach and then also combining it with a system science approach uh, in terms of how do multiple parts of, of a system interact. So I'm trying to bring those three together because what strikes me is um, Yes, we have capability approaches, particularly from economics. We have these wonderful tools of system science uh, to deal with major complexity. Uh, and we also have this sort of burgeoning evidence base that we know, at least from the uh, individual and psychological literature, what actually enables wellbeing. Uh, and what, one of the things you often hear about wellbeing, and there are debates, the well-being scientists, they're interested in measuring well-being and as, as you are involved in yourself, the, the idea of, you know, can we have national accounts of well-being and, and alternatives to GDP, that's one argument. Uh, so really interested in trying to have a, a multidisciplinary approach of taking the best of psychology, what we know from aspects of economics, but also often when you talk about well-being, people either try and put it in an economic lens or they'll put it in a medical lens and so the you know well-being will be reduced to illness prevention and when I say reduced illness prevention is important but well-being comes in at a much higher level uh, than that so thrivability theory is trying to take the best aspects of those together and bring together what we know from the capability approaches uh, but put a positive lens on them so capability is often well yeah I'm capable which is which is a good thing and certainly it's a hell of a lot better than poverty but if you one of the things positive psychology does is it try to look at try to look at things that are working really well and functioning really well. Hence my term thriveability rather than capability. So yeah, yep. what, what I'm trying to do with it is is bring together the evidence uh, and and put together a framework that these different disciplines can can come at uh, from from their from, from their different areas and I divide it into two two key things based on the old. Um, 
positive and negative liberty, that is uh, some of Isaac Haberlin's work, what do we need to be free from? So if we have a society, and I asked you, you know, what, what five or so things, if you could remove them from society, do you think would generally uh, eliminate or, you know, if you could eliminate them, what would increase the population of the World Bank? So people will say things like uh, violence or war, uh, poverty, that, that sort of major public policy type things. I know we're not meant to mention policy, but I mentioned that they're in, in, the, in the general, Andrew. Um, mm. But also, conversely, the, the freedom too. What do people need to be capable to do? And importantly here, how do we educate them to do it? Let me just uh, take you on that uh, that education issue there, because yep. I think that's one of the sort of key dimensions of how you think about mental well-being, which might be different from how uh, how others approach it. Uh, you've talked about the the uh, tension between the medicalisation approach and the education approach. Uh, yep. How does that change how I or one of my listeners uh, might deal with uh, with with a uh, a mental well-being challenge? Okay, so there's two there's two parts here. There's um, a mental wellbeing challenge. So if we take it take it as a mental illness, like so if somebody has depression and anxiety, and I, I suggest yeah they need they need uh, treatment for that in in a fairly traditional medical sense, but that's a portion of the population, and uh, 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 hopefully a relatively small portion of the population. Certainly for serious mental illness, it might be less than three percent. Often it might be twenty percent if you include drug and alcohol. The lifetime prevalence, but that's still a, only one portion of the population, and that is that is mental illness. When I say well-being, I'm talking more broadly about whether a person uh, is satisfied with their life, whether their life has meaning, whether they have good social relationships. It's a much broader, um, a broad, broader concept. So a lot of those skills, and that's exactly what some of our, some of our work is in the in the of positive psychology and the idea of positive education alongside some of the approaches like social emotional learning we can teach people a lot of skills not just to prevent illness but to manage their own well-being to manage their emotions to, to self-regulate to develop relationships and a lot of this stuff is happening in part in the school system um, but it may it's not always seen as as core business and say, oh, we're going to teach people about well-being, and then immediately people often think, oh, we've got a medical approach. We're going to teach them to prevent anxiety and depression, which I'm saying, yes, that's part of it. But well-being is a much bigger beast, and a lot of it is teachable and learnable um, in ways that go well beyond the way we currently talk about uh, medical problems and medical distress. Some people say, oh, are you saying we shouldn't treat illness? I'm saying not at all. I'm saying that illness and illness treatment is not the way to talk about population wellbeing. To, to put it directly, I use the phrase teach rather than treat. Um, and that, that kind of summarises the, the core essence of that, that, that argument. And in a practical sense, you've, uh, you've said that uh, you admire the uh, Stoics. Uh, what is it that we learn from the Stoics in terms of how to live a, a more fulfilling life? I think I mean with the, there's the Stoics. There's there's a bunch of the the great you know the great philosophies we can learn learn from each of them, and they're not always popular for everyone. So the Stoics will tell us that you know be take responsibility and 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 live live through tough times or regulate you know learn to regulate your emotions rather than eliminate them or only don't don't seek 
pleasure all the time. So that's one one example. I I'm sort of I'm of the view of we you know if we can teach people all of these different approaches, they they actually have options which which fit with their own ethics and their own propensities. But if they're not taught about them or, or taught that they can manage their own learning about how to live and leave it all to professionals and shipping people off to professionals when they get Ill, illness or distressed, I think we're kind of failing it. And I, I have this view that some of the uh, separation we have in, in our systems between health and education are somewhat unfortunate because... Um, I'm currently on a, a UNESCO uh, group where we're working on an assessment uh, of education uh, and looking at shifting education for, traditionally it's been viewed as for uh, human capital, development of human capital, which not in, not in and of itself is not a bad thing, but it doesn't capture the whole of education. So we're, we're talking about education for flourishing, which includes the idea of people becoming capable uh, and in my language, the idea of people uh, developing their own skills to help their own well-being and the well-being of others. Yeah, bring it down to the specific skills. You've also uh, spoken about the importance of cognitive behavioural therapy, which I'm uh, quite a, quite a fan of, uh, and the value of labelling unhelpful thinking styles, such as catastrophizing uh, or over overgeneralisation. Uh, do you see there as being a, a, a role for each of us to do a little bit more cognitive behavioural therapy in our own lives and in our own work as parents? Oh, absolutely. I mean, cognitive behavioural therapy has been you know, quite quite successful in terms of uh, the evident, evidence base. I remember I was heavily trained in that approach when I, I, I did my first trainings and, and more recently the areas of positive psychology are not, a lot of them are cognitive behavioural in nature, but it's, you know, uh, cognitive behavioural approaches to improve your functioning in general, not necessarily just to treat anxiety or when it's just, that's important, in addition to treating anxiety and depression. Um, and, you know, cognitive reattribution, so re-looking re at how you think about things is is not just a skill, it's a, it's a useful skill um, in general, in the workplace, in everybody's lives. Even the idea that you can observe your own thinking um, for some people, that that's a major a major breakthrough. Uh, it sounds obvious to many of us, but uh, there are some people that believe every thought they have. Um, so some of these fundamental psychological skills um, not only prevent illness, but they improve performance and they improve uh, general well-being. And probably really importantly, they improve potentially our relationships, um, which is one of the big drivers of well-being: the quality of our relationships. Tying in our conversation before about sport, are there ways in which uh, effective coaches can bring these skills into uh, into what they're doing uh, in the uh, in in teaching kids or even adults on the sporting field? Absolutely, and um, I've been involved in several projects, and we have uh, a couple of people on our our team that actually are doing their PhD on on that sort of area in terms of. Uh, how does the behaviour of the coach impact not only on the performance but the well-being of of the athlete or the, in many cases, the uh, teenage community-based sports person? Um, and it can be as simple as the way praise is given or the way things are talked about, and also giving um, giving young people or athletes in general the ability to 
regulate their thinking and also regulate their levels of arousal. A lot of these skills are very generalizable across multiple contexts in, in, our, in our society. Um, and that's one of the reasons I talk about. Can we make it even more, even more concrete. Uh, yeah, let's go. What, 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 you, what, if you're speaking to somebody who is about to take on the role of coaching a kid's sports team, what are the top tips you give them? Um, there'll be a, a couple of things. The first one I'd say is, is look at your language, literally look at the language you're using. Uh, in, in, in positive psychology, we talk about growth mindset. So rather than saying, oh, uh, you, you, you can't develop it, um, you know, you can develop it with time. So actually the feedback and rewarding, rewarding effort and re praising uh, the effort to change something rather than um, just evaluating things as good or bad. Uh, the other thing is uh, looking at asking people about looking at their own thinking. And so this is not my specific area, but uh, I can tell you that some of the general principles will be things like um, self-talk, uh, helping people look at their own self-talk and rather than being an evaluative self-talk, that is, oh, I did well or I did poorly, uh, they talk about procedural self-talk. So rather than I did terrible, I didn't take, I didn't catch the ball or I didn't take the mark or kick the goal, whatever it is, it's just talk to yourself in terms of what your next task is. So procedural, you know, move here, move there. So actually teaching people to mm. look at their thinking and how they talk to themselves literally, uh, uh, they're, they're very tangible and useful um, useful skills. I sometimes do that in the morning when I'm not functioning well. I just say, just get yourself here, get yourself there, and uh, things come better later. I don't know if you've had mornings like that. But I Absolutely. <laughs> so so your, your self-talk then, uh, Lindsay, becomes very, very practical. This is what you should do rather than taking the, the broader sort of, uh, I've, I've, I've stuffed up, I'm too late, uh, this, the, the, the sort of catastrophizing talk that we can sometimes get into when things are going wrong. Absolutely. And so in, I, was, I was thinking in the sport context, particularly procedural self-talk, so staying focused on what the task is and mm. getting, getting rid of the evaluation thoughts. There, there are, I mean, as you said, there's a range of different things. Um, but that's the type of thing, and that's that's a sport performance that relates to exam performance. It relates to work performance, uh, and the, you know, underpinning all of this is you know, concepts like self-talk, self-regulation, the stuff. Um, you know, we live this stuff day to day, but they're they're really important um, important contexts. Uh, sorry, important skills for multiple contexts, uh, and that's what I mean by we can bring more of that into our school education system and stop leaving it to health system more people in the population with those skills to improve self-talk to manage emotions uh, improve performance ways of dealing with emotions during relationships uh, they're all really important aspects i'm involved in one project in in victoria which is part of the uh, respectful relationships project which is the uh, about re reducing domestic violence or reducing violence. Um, they're, they're the sorts of interfaces we see between um, social health and uh, education systems. And that, that's kind of where there is still a lot more that can be done if it's seen as a legitimate role of our education system, which is hopefully that's uh, will be increasingly seen that way. Yes, I'm struck by the uh, the research in relationships on our 
responsiveness to praise versus criticism. Uh, this suggestion that we need uh, four or five pieces of praise to make up for one piece of criticism uh, suggests that uh, we need to uh, be, be much more thoughtful about how we engage with one another and that uh, even a sandwich approach of delivering criticism doesn't, uh, doesn't quite allow the, uh, uh, the, the bad to be balanced out by the good. Yeah, the bad is stronger than the good. And so the old negativity bias and the fact that we pay more attention to negative events um, and, and negative emotions can often be less, less frequent but more potent, um, uh, whereas positive emotions, are, you know, the ones that feel good are often lighter. Uh, for most of us, we have them more often. So if there is a negative event, and we see this, obviously, the media does this because they, they'll draw on a negative event because it'll get, get people's attention. Uh, so that negativity bias, uh, evolutionary biologists telling us that it's probably built into us for survival reasons. So it has good reason, uh, but often it, 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 it sucks our attention and um, makes us focus on the negative. Um, and that, that's where aspects of positive psychology come in because they give us skill sets to sort of uh, counterbalance that old survival mechanism of focusing on the negative um, to, to explore other things. And we saw a lot of that very early during the, um, the recent pandemic, a um, lot of focus on the negative, uh, appropriately so in some ways, because there's a major threat, um, but it's when that, that, that becomes the only form of thinking which permeates everything, uh, that's, that's when we can get, get stuck. Uh, positive psychology strikes me as enormously practical. Uh, there seems to be none of the sort of delving back into your childhood that you see in, uh, in Freudian psycho psychoanalysis. Uh, is that characterising the way a lot of psychologists do their work these days? Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the approach of thinking, role-playing, role thinking through behaviours, how to avoid automaticity and so on, rather than sort of going back more deeply into your, uh, your soul and your past? I think it, it certainly characterises cognitive behaviour therapy, which, as we were talking about before, has become very popular in, in psychology and certainly in the Australian context, very, very dominant in the way psychology is taught at a, at a professional level, at a post-grad level. Um, and parts of positive psychology have kind of, uh, through the work of uh, people like Martin Seligman, taking a, a very cognitive behavioural type or rational emotive behavioural therapy type approach and bringing it into pos psych. Um, so overall, I'd say yes. Uh, however, there are, you know, humanistic tradition where we focus on meaning and growth is still very, very prominent. Uh, one thing, I, it gets overdone, but asking people, you know, what they're grateful for, um, age-old tradition across multiple religions, but the actual act of doing it is usually brings immediate uh, positive emotional uh, results and people get a quite tangible experience quite quickly. Uh, there, there, are, there are things like that which make it, um, make it attractive uh, that people can start uh, impacting their own emotional state Lindsay, are there other aspects of this that you've used in your own life? You spoke before about the uh, positive or practical self-talk. Uh, I'm not sure whether you do a, a daily gratitude exercise. Are, are there other sort of tips and tricks that you've picked up from researching this field? Oh, there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of them. Um, we use, I mean, I personally, um, 
I, I did used to examine my thoughts a lot, but I now do that. I think I do. I do that automatically. Um, certainly use gratitude when I um, when I'm getting angry. Um, mm. I know I notice it's like I'm getting agitated, and it's like, and then you step back and you do you, you do your gratitude you do your gratitude piece. Um, there's there's obviously there's tools like mind, mindfulness has become very 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 popular. I actually personally um, and traditions like mindfulness and loving kindness meditation they they predate positive psychology by a couple of thousand years, of course. Um, <laughs> but but what the what the science has brought is that 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 uh, Western science evaluation of these approaches, and you get these interesting interfaces between. You know, these are major major traditions uh, and, and modern science. Um, but to come back to your question, uh, I think I've been so exposed to it. I kind of use it's like a smorgasbord, and I, I think that's important too because different different approaches, um, be it be it looking at your optimism or um, doing exercises, looking looking at your thinking or self regulation, these types of ideas, different skill sets will uh, be it useful for different people. So there's a lot of individual differences in, and needs in for different people. Uh, not, not, it's not a one size fits all. Um, and one of the things I talk about is wellbeing literacy. So it's, um, it's actually giving people the language to talk about this. We have, we have language to talk about illness and distress. Um, mm. Some people have surprisingly little language to talk about uh, positive emotions, gratitude, optimism, self-regulation. The sort of stuff that myself and my colleagues talk about all the time, yeah, it's fairly technical language, but it doesn't have to be technical. There are other words. And we're very interested in how people in real-world environments are communicating about and for uh, well-being. And I'm, I'm interested in that as much as I am in the specific tool sets that we can uh, teach people. Because a lot of people do many of these things anyway, a part, a part of the role I see we have is educating and helping them to do it more uh, and more intentionally. Um, so we saw that a lot again during the pandemic in the different ways people are trying to help each other get through lockdown, be it through the way they're communicating with teddy bears in windows or singing off balconies right through to dancing. Uh, they're all different things they're doing to help each other through. Um, mm. But how do we help them do more of it and how do we help them be aware of what they're doing and why they're doing it? And that, that's what I mean by a wellbeing literacy uh, type, of, type approach. And I've been talking about COVID being a great teacher because it's actually, in my, way, in my view, it's actually been a terrible thing, but at the same time, it's been a wellbeing educator because there's been a lot of conversations going on about how to get through the day, how to, how to structure your day so you still have social contact um, in my language, there have been conversations about people talking about what predicts well-being and then how to get it um, for loved ones. So you're going to say one of the really interesting things about thrivability theory to me is that it uh, contests the notion that well-being is all just on an individual level and talks about uh, our friends and, and also the context of the environments around us. Uh, what, what what do you think of as being particularly important in terms of how our environment shapes our well-being? Oh, hugely so. I mean, one of, as I said, I was trained as a psychologist, but one of my great criticisms of psychology is it's been too individual-focused and, and some people almost forget that we have an environment because they're too busy looking at 
too, too busy looking at what goes on inside the skin uh, rather than outside the skin. Um, and if you look at the evidence from uh, the wellbeing, wellbeing science um, and also the philosophers of wellbeing, human relationships or relationships in general um, are central uh, and in many ways probably the most robust predictor of, of wellbeing broadly. Uh, so, and that, that, you know, that could be an interpersonal relationship, it could be a sense of belonging, a sense of connection, all of those things. Uh, and it strikes me both combination of individualist psychology in these in some very individualist societies like the US and Australia we have we have these systems which can lead us away from what actually predicts well-being um, and sense of community social it's a hard one for psychologists though isn't it uh, I mean you can easily offer someone some self-talk strategies but telling someone all right now go out and find five really good friends is uh, not necessarily a recommendation everyone can action no, it is hard, and it needs that that particular way of thinking about it needs a bit of scaffolding. But there are there are ways you can um, enable people to develop uh, friendships and and maintain good relationships. So again, there are skills, and a lot of it's interesting. What sorts of things? Give us a couple of a couple of practical uh, ideas there for adults, for example. Um, just 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 loosening your idea of what a friendship is. Of course, Aristotle used to talk about what a friendship is, but at a practical level, just um, a friend, common activities. So rather than, and we used to teach people this in, in drug rehab, the idea that um, just find a common activity. You don't have to be their friend. Just go and do the same thing, and then the friendship, uh, the friendship will emerge. Uh, really mm. basic things like listening skills. It sounds very basic, but actually the ability to ask people questions and listen to them. Um, you'd be amazed at how many people are not effective. Uh, not effective listeners. Sorry, um, I missed that last bit. What did you say there? <laughs> nice one. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that that the they're just a couple of tangible examples, but they they very much fit into uh, you know the things we live live for for day day to day. And social anxiety, that you know, not being able to anticipate or being scared of how people evaluate you, um, they're fundamental um, skills that can be developed and honed um, and of course are at an early level at a, at a young age um, but they can continually be developed and honed uh, but it, it's a matter of whether our education system views them as important i just had a literally two days ago I had a phd student who's just got through Hayes camacho his work is on uh, emotions during collaborative problem solving what i mean by that is uh, put two kids online where they've got a, a problem to solve together. Uh, what are their emotions during, during that? Um, Cause a lot of, a lot of what we've been doing is collaborative problem solving. Uh, yep. We're all doing it on zoom. What are our emotions during that period and how, how do we, how can we manage our emotions to, to do better collaborative problem solving? That is what's referred to as a 21st century skill. Um, that's the sort of stuff I'm talking about. It can have a lot of practical implications uh in in our modern in our modern workplace as well and you've also explored the notion of uh, diversity in our social engagements and the idea that uh, perhaps uh, deep happiness comes not only from being around a bunch of people who are very similar to us but also having a, a set of 
friendships or relationships which are more broadly representative of the community we live in? I, yeah, I mean, I personally believe, you know, diversity is not just nice, it's now a, it's an essential skill to, to be able to do that um, as, as we develop our young, young people um, to, uh, obviously there's an ethical debate and component here, but uh, I'm seeing it from a pragmatic sense. That is how the world is. Uh, and therefore we need our young people to have skills, you know, intercultural skills and how to understand um, difference. Um, my experience lately is that a lot of the young, the young, the young people are doing it better than um, a lot of the older people because they're, they're, they're brought up with it. Um, but a lot of that is uh, anticipating, you know, the, the in that in formal sense called theory of mind, anticipating how others are thinking, having an idea of how where others are coming from, and particularly the idea of perspective taking, uh, which again is teachable. We have skills to teach people how to how to put yourself in another person's shoes and take their perspective which interestingly not only helps school kids uh but it's one of a great a lot of our senior managers actually are very good at perspective taking it makes them mm. man managers so you have common common skills uh which broadly fit what, what you know they get called soft skills in some contexts i prefer people or human skills as a term um but a lot of these overlap with well-being and well-being education um, because, as I said, relationships are so central uh, to, to well-being. And in building those relationships, you've also talked about the importance of stories, about how humans respond to stories and, and how we form narratives that are really crucial to our well-being. Uh, how should we think about the role of stories in uh, living happily and well? I think um, stories are, are very natural to us, or cultural. Natural is the wrong word. They come naturally to us. They, they, they're, they're, they're very day-to-day -day things. And a lot of the way we process, process information uh, is through stories. And it's a way of, you know, literally a story is uh, a series of events tied together and imbued with meaning. Um, so I, I actually view well-being in that way often often you can tell a lot about a person's well-being by listening to their stories because they'll often tell stories about times when they had great connections with others so when they had friends or they had events where they were with other people or they tell stories of their their great achievements and something where they've overcome something um, and sometimes they still tell stories about when they, when they managed a difficult event and held things together so you can actually look at aspects of well-being through the stories people tell. One of the reasons I like stories, um, we, we're in an age of quantitative scales where we measure, you know, we measure people with self-reports or we get, get lots of quantitative indicators of things, which is appropriate for certain things, but it doesn't capture the, it doesn't always capture the meaning or particularly the process that people go through, uh, which, which fits the idea of uh, flourishing, which, it's a process, so it doesn't it doesn't get captured by a single uh, cross-sectional questionnaire or one, you know one slice in time. It's 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 got that notion of overtime process, a, a video rather than a still camera shot, mm, mm. Uh, and that that's kind of the essence of the the original idea of of flourishing. And I think stories um, match that quality, and they also match the fact that most of us use 
we either tell them or listen to them. They're, they're very natural to us. You've got uh, two sons. How has uh, being a positive psychology researcher shaped you as a parent? Uh, it tells me how imperfect I am. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think it, it, does, it does help uh, a, a great deal um, because, of, because of the skill sets I, I was talking about. Um, and it's been, again, it's been interesting during the pandemic period and, and having close, having close uh, uphand uh, with, with my two kids in terms of their learning. Mm. Uh, but I, certainly in terms of what I was talking about before, in terms of self-regulation, so literally when they um, bring back their school reports rather than evaluating it for them, I try to get them to internalise uh, self-regulation, that is, monitoring their own progress rather than someone else monitoring their progress. So that would be an example of, of self-regulation. Um, positive psychology is about emphasising your strengths. So we, we have conscious conversations about what, what, what they're good at and how they'd like to do more of that. Um, and then if one day they get good enough, good enough at using their strengths, they may not have to do things they don't like so much. Um, uh, so there's, there's other things too. I think... Um, Different things for different folks. Uh, my my eldest son is very self-critical, so we've worked a lot on him with with him on his self-talk, both at at school and particularly on the sports field. Uh, my youngest son, not so much now, but he used to be quite uh, impulsive. So again, we've worked on uh, how to how to how to deal with um, think before you act, which is not just positive psychology; that's psychology in general. Um, mm. But things like that, there it, it 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 can go on. But I think one of the one of the key things is that 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 strength lens. That is what's working well, and how can we do more of it rather than how do we eliminate you know things that are bad. Yes, I find it myself as a dad. So one of the things I'm trying to work on at the moment is when we're sitting down to dinner, uh, not focusing on. Uh, uh, whether a kid is dropping food on the table, but uh, instead having a conversation about the great things they did at school that day or how they, how they helped a friend. And it's just so easy to be distracted as a parent by the naughty things or the bad things or the things that you, 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 would, you would fix if you were in their shoes uh, rather than thinking about these as uh, three amazing little people who are flourishing in the world and uh, and who are doing all sorts of extraordinary things I never could have done at their age. Yeah, and there's a there's a real discipline to it too, and it's hard. And, and parent parents know this. Um, and we have uh, again, we have some researchers at our unit, uh, researchers and practitioners that do exactly that. They do strength based parenting uh, and these these sorts of approaches in in the parenting and family. Um, Context, and that's one of the things I love seeing is what it looks, what what well-being and positive psychology approaches look like in different contexts. Be they parenting, be they school, being they workplace, uh, it's it's really interesting to see how generalizable these concepts are. Obviously, they look different, and they're done differently, but the, the fundamental principles are very similar across these contexts. Uh, you're uh, you're also an expert in uh, coaching researchers. Uh, you wrote a book last year called Coaching and Mentoring Research, a practical guide uh, based on having uh, taken 17 doctoral students uh, through the thesis. So congratulations on, the, on that achievement. Um, what tips do you give uh, new 
PhD advisors um, uh, or indeed uh, uh, university teachers of any sort about how to be more effective mentors? Yeah, um, so it's 18 as of yesterday. I just thought I'd add that. Fabulous. <laughs> I'm well done. pleased about that. Um, yeah, so what just coaching, the idea of coaching in general, um, these sort of structured, intentional conversations, goal-based conversations, um, very much, um, and, and mentoring. I mean, the PhD approach is essentially a mentoring approach where you've, you've done something and, and the student sort of wants to be like you because you've done it. But what I've seen in that relationship with PhD students is there's a lot of, a lot of coaching, coaching skills. So in that, in that book, I actually tried to apply um, coaching skills towards learning research um, skills. So it was a, a double thing. So one, uh, one of the things we've done there is seen really common problems that students, new, new PhD students run into. Uh, one of the first one is is the front end scoping. They just they just have projects which are way too big. So uh, tip number one would be decrease your original uh, idea by five hundred percent. So people often they draw five circles and put arrows between the circles. I say cross out four circles and get inside the fifth circle. So that that's that's probably tip tip number one. Probably tip number two would be just cheer. Uh, Project management, self-regulation skills again. Um, good old, be they good old Gantt charts. Just, just that really realistic uh, time frame stuff. Um, people often think they have to put their life's work into the PhD. Um, I often say a PhD is, it's like it's like the weather. Its uh, barometer is one one index to the weather, and your PhD is one index to your learning. It's not everything you're going to learn over that period. Um, so protect it, define it and protect it, um, if that makes sense. So you just, you, you pick something and you do that um, mm. and protect its structure um, and don't feel like you have to stuff everything into it because learning will happen outside of it as well. Even if we're not supervising PhD students, I think many of us find ourselves in a role of uh, being mentors as well. So thinking about some of those skills in mentoring people in the workplace who are taking on projects to to take on projects that are manageable, to take on projects in such a way that you don't end up uh, having them consume your, ent- your entire job, I think is, uh, is re- really crucial. Um, do you see the field of positive psychology growing in Australia? Where do you see, who do you look to as the, uh, the, the rising stars in this area? institutionally and individually um yeah i mean positive psychology we've talked about we this is a strategic decision for us a lot and we're talking about it a lot a lot there's a lot of interest in positive psychology uh and there's a lot of interest in well-being science so i use i use those terms not interchangeably well-being science is you know goes outside of psychology um economics has got aspects of well-being science sociology does um and and philosophy is not science but we often talk to philosophers as well so there's a much broader group of people looking at well-being and that that is definitely a growing area um positive psychology is uh quite a focused area because it is exactly that it's psychology only i think the biggest thing that's happening is it's it's really working its way into the education context um and if presented in the right way to people, it is also making its way into organisations and business contexts. And when I say that, I mean 
people might not come up positive psychology, but they'll come up well-being, performance, motivation, those types of words and terms. Uh, so the way things are framed are really important because different industries and different personalities will uh, be attracted or not attracted to something depending on how it's wrapped. Um, and it, it's meeting a need for a lot of people and it's attracting a lot of people's interest. Uh, so, yeah, I think education first and then uh, workplaces is, 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 is coming. But the, from my perspective, if we can get that dovetailing of um, health and economics and education, uh, then I think we, there's, a, there's a lot of things it can offer. Look, it's optimistic, interdisciplinary, and does lots of randomised trials. That uh, get, it ticks all the boxes as far as I'm concerned. Um, Lindsay, let me uh, wrap up by asking you a couple of questions I ask all my interviewees. What advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, yes, that's an interesting question. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. And someone else asked me that. Um, two, t two things I would, I would actually probably uh, work more on maintaining and improving my relationships. I had reasonable relationships, but I didn't realize how important, uh, I didn't realize how important they were. Uh, and the, the, the second one would just be um, believe in myself even more. I believe in myself now, but I wish I believed in myself as much now, uh, sorry, back then as I do now. So actually that, that, that uh, just trust and belief in oneself. Uh, Cause there's, I remember my teenage self as, uh, confident on the surface, but a doubter on the inside. So uh, somehow, if if, it, if I could find that strength to trust who I was a bit more at that age, I'd be um, probably would have had a better time. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that people were watching me, uh, like I was socially conscious, and and then I realised now that most people are so absorbed with themselves that they weren't even noticing me. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't believe uh, that people were as aware of me, uh, are aware of me as they, I'm sorry, I don't believe people are watching you or are aware of you as you think they are when you're, you're, you're not as confident or doubting oneself, which is what partly was my experience of being a teenager. Not, not totally, but some of that. Whereas now I realise everyone's on their own journey and half the time they don't even notice you because they're too absorbed in themselves. I like to tell my boys about that uh, fabulous psychology experiment where they get uh, one of the subjects to put on a uh, T-shirt with an out outlandish slogan on it and walk into a room of strangers. And then they ask them how many of the strangers they thought noticed the T-shirts and most people say everyone. And then they ask the strangers how many noticed the T-shirts and it's like one in ten have noticed the T-shirt. Uh, we're all uh, very much living in our own worlds. Yep, absolutely. Uh, when are you most happy? Uh, a couple of a, a, a couple of times. One one when I'm uh, traveling with my family. So I've got the double I've got the double whammy of being with my family uh, and getting the curious adventure of new new cultures. Uh, that that'll be one. And probably the other one is when I achieve something like a goal directed thing in a team. Um, so say at work when our team succeeds. Thing and you got that pride of having worked on it and achieving it uh, together as a group. So there's a common factor there. There's both both involves other people, but one's one's sort of for enjoyment and adventure, and the other one is sort of task based achievement. 
It's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy. Uh, I think mentally healthy, part of my work is one of the honours of the type of work I do is I get exposed to a lot of really interesting information. Um, But but what I do do is kind of have have uh, broader conversations and, and give I give myself time to just to sit with ideas and, and not have to work too hard but just have some free-flowing conversations that help me integrate all that information that that kind of stops me getting overloaded I give like sort of pause and integrate um, that that that's for mental health um, physical so health. that sounds like not setting time limits on yourself that are to, that are too that, that push you too much. Is is that the kind of broader lesson there? Yeah, or and or just uh, giving. So so for example, when I when I travel, I have the opportunity to to think a little uh, because I'm away from the time pressure of all the, all the stuff. But I, I still think about my work. But I it's sort of this unstructured, free flowing time to help integrate mm. in my head. Um, stops me going a bit, stops me feeling scattered. Yes. Um, yeah. And sorry, are you going to say on the physical health side? On oh, the physical side, I would say walking outside, walking in green. Um, mm. So both walking, so walking is physically healthy, but the actual a- aspect of walking, uh, the benefits of walking both physically and also for the fact that you notice a lot of things when you're walking uh, and with green, you're getting you're sort of getting your attention restored. You feel better because of being around green. So putting those together, that 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 walking in walking in green green spaces is is really helpful to me. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, yes, uh, although I'm not guilty about it. Although some people tell me I should be. Um, red wine is my red red wine is probably my greatest guilty. Pleasure. It it restores everything within 20, <laughs> twenty five minutes. <laughs> and finally, Lindsay, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, dead person would be Aristotle. Uh, a live person would probably be the Dalai Lama. So they're quite quite different, obviously. Um, mm. But yeah, I've been been influenced by, you know, really intellectually influenced by Aristotle's ideas around ethics. Uh, but at a more personal level and in the real world, I've been, I've been quite influenced heavily by some of the Buddhist ideas and um, the Dalai Lama obviously is one of the proponents of that. Um, so he's kind of a, uh, an icon of that area. But, uh, yeah, that'll, that'll, can I have two answers, dead and alive? Absolutely. I think that's a beautiful answer. Uh, and with that, uh, Lindsay Oates, positive psychologist, thanks so much for taking your time to appear on the Good Life podcast today. Great. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Randolph Sparks, Martha Nussbaum and Deborah Rickwood. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.